0: Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. I'm Dr. Doolittle. Now,
1: we've got a pretty packed show today, so I'm going to pretty much jump straight into it. But I'll just give you a heads up. First up, um, not first up, our second segment is actually an interview with the famous Dr. Michael Mosley, the UK TV presenter and doctor. He's uh, written a new book called COVID-19, What You Need to Know About the Coronavirus and the Race for the Vaccine. He's also, I don't think they've aired yet, but he's made three documentaries for Horizon over there on uh, coronavirus. So it's right up to the latest and interviewed everyone, and we uh, we pre-recorded this. So, uh, in fact, I chatted to him. Thursday night, and uh, it's a great interview, it covers lots of ground. Um, but of course, right now I'm in the Triple R building with Panel Beta in the next studio, and we've got Dr. Patient on the blower. So, without any further ado, why don't we uh, jump straight in? Firstly, get a Panel Beta, you there, mate? Yeah, good morning, D Little. How you doing? Sorry that I had my levels a little bit wrong. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good. doing all right. Oh, good. And we've got Dr. Patient on the line we too. We certainly do. Can you hear me, Dr. Patient? Good morning. Hey, it's good to hear your voice. We haven't had you on the show for a little while. Yeah,
2: it's, it's been a while.
1: <laughs> hey, and how are you going with ISO Mark II? Oh, look, not too bad. I think, what is it? It's,
2: uh, it's April
1: the 312th now. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> that reminds me, has anyone listened to Ben Fold's new song? It's called 2020, and it just highlights the fact that this year seems to be a mix of all the bad years we've had in the last hundred years. It's, quite, it's, worth, it's worth looking up online and having a listen. It's beautiful. Yeah, so you're going all right, though? Yeah, yeah. Look, we're, we're coping okay. I've gained
2: a fine selection of weight. Um, <laughs> uh, I've uh, managed to get to, managed to get a bit of reading done, and uh, we're 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 dealing with uh, we're dealing with lockdown two point
1: Yeah, and are you, are you doing any? I've gained weight too, but I just started last week. Decided, you know what's time to get serious. So I just started a diet. Are You uh, in the mood yet to start anything uh, active like that?
2: We're uh, we're starting to wake up a little bit from We've been in that uh, in that definite um, that definite sort of huddle down mode for the past month. But uh, we we were just talking about it this weekend that it might be time to, to try and crawl ourselves out of uh, out of that uh, that hibernation a little.
1: Yeah. Hey. Now, the, the thing that you wanted to talk about on the show today was your experience as a, you know, as a patient. And of course, we've talked about your experience of schizophrenia before. And in fact, you and I did a TV show on SBS about it about a year or two yeah. ago now. Um, so, uh, give us give us a rundown. What what was on your mind?
2: Something that I really wanted to talk about, and and I'm just uh, I'm hoping that this might sort of get out amongst the the community a little. Two things that have strangely abated while we've been in lockdown, not just 1.0, point but 2.0 more so, is that I've found my my isolation and my experience of paranoia have actually decreased during this. And it seems, it seems odd that this would occur, but um, when I go outside into the street, I see everyone wearing masks, seeing everyone behaving the same way. And the paranoia dissipates because I'm finally able to see and tangibly uh, tangibly feel that everyone is thinking and acting and and worried about the same things and i know it, for for a lot of people you know isolation's been an introvert's dream but but this this is something that i never expected to happen and when i see the occasional person without a mask or i see the articles of people saying this is all a hoax and and Suddenly, I see them as the as the people with the paranoia and the people who are who are quite genuinely isolated and afraid from from a mental perspective and so i'd never thought that that could actually happen
1: yes you know it 's really interesting isn 't it because my initial um reaction when you said that was i find there's more paranoia in our community of course which you touched on you know there's all these ideas that the virus is a hoax and everything you know i mean i'm seeing a lot more paranoia so it's um it's uh, kind of that your paranoia would decrease yeah
2: it, it, it's it's on and and you know coming from you know the the, the fact that, that my illness operates in that, in that realm and then now that everyone else is feeling more paranoid I, I don't know it's just a weird suddenly it's a mirror reflection of, of what's going on and I'm feeling a little more at ease about it I, I yeah I mean you, you're the you're more of the psychiatrist than I'm in this but I just couldn't believe that it actually happened and so you know I've still got my other symptoms as well but this this one has abated and it's it's actually been a bit
1: of a relief. Well, let me tell you about something funny, weird, strange that I never quite understood but you've just reminded me of it when I was a psychiatry registrar back at Larundel Hospital. So we're going back I suppose 25 odd years. And uh, I was working in the, the ward where um, the sickest people were, the people who were suffering the most from their schizophrenia. And uh, it's a it was essentially a locked ward and there was about 25 patients in there and it and chick I think it was chickenpox, I'm trying to remember, but chickenpox went through the ward. About a third of the pa- Patients got chickenpox. And when they got sick with chickenpox, those who, you know, and these were people who had very severe illness, who were in a very bad phase of their um, treatment, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, before they'd get better and they'd move out to um, uh, unlocked wards and then, of course, back into the community. So it's like the equivalent of intensive care for medicine. And um, all the patients who got sick, their symptoms of schizophrenia fell through the floor and people who you know i'd been interviewing on a daily basis who were you know had really quite marked paranoia and delusions i'd go in and see them and you know just to check how they were going through chicken pox and everything and i'd say hey you're going to... oh good hey doc how, how's your um feelings of paranoia you know whatever they were i'd ask no oh, no good as gold what about the voices no i'm not hearing any voices at the moment and it was really quite un... it was quite an unusual experience do you have any theories why it might be
3: is it, could it be?
2: A, could it be a comfort with a social connection? The, the, the. I mean, the, the, the symptoms of the paranoia come from the idea that, um, that you know, you're experiencing this alone. You know, as a patient, I am generally feeling that I'm experiencing this alone. No matter, you know, how intrinsic we're trying to get back into culture. I mean, it just maybe, maybe it's that we're finally able to connect with people on a on a level. Maybe there is a level of just human interaction involved that. That rises above the the voices of the anxiety and the voices of the persecution.
1: You know, another thing that struck me, I wondered about that. I also wondered about, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of your needs. And I also wondered that... that, You know, when we're really sick and unwell, like these people were quite sick with fevers and stuff and unwell and got, and got a lot of basic um, basic needs like survival on our mind, that our mental space becomes less important to us and maybe our mental space in somehow it, it's not as relevant to us at that time and all of our sort of energy is focused on sickness. I don't know. I also wondered about just whether the effects of a fever. Hey, um, I might also bring Panel Beta in if he's um, over. I can't quite see him through the reflections. Did you have any questions or anything you wanted
0: to add at this point, Panel Beta? Yeah, it's great to um, um, hear that uh, about. Uh, Dr. Patient, hi there. Um, I'm, one, I'm wondering if you've had this positive experience uh, in lockdown, what does that mean for you f- forecasting when we revert back? You know, rumor has it that we're not going to be locked down forever. <laughs> so now that you've had this positive exchange, are you anticipating uh, a rise in, anxi- in anxiety as we return to quote unquote normal?
2: well this is the, this is a thing, and i and I had speculated on it like we'll, what will change when we go back to normal and you know once once we are starting to you know get back get back into the world, I think there will be a a hopeful uh, dissipation through the community where everyone just starts talking about their experiences and i 'm hoping that the, and it will inevitably peter out, but i 'm hoping to ride that for as long as possible, and it may actually. Help uh, patients rise to to a little more connectivity as we start getting back out amongst the community. And of course, you know there will be the individual isolation and the individual um, uh, symptoms that, that that we as patients have. But maybe it will just help everyone understand each other a little bit more. That's that's a hope. I mean, uh, the anxiety is there is that yes, you know we're, we'll have to be getting back to normal, and everyone's going to have their own problems and that sort of thing. But I'm hoping that we'd be able to carry that through to, so people can finally relate to patients uh, with these illnesses and say, hey, this is what this is what life is like 24-7 for a lot of these patients.
0: It's a very
1: positive thought. Hey, I know another thing you wanted to mention this morning was um, a new website, SANE, has launched, which I've had a look at uh, too called You Are Not Alone. Can you give us, yeah. we've only got about a minute, can you give us a yeah. quick summary of what it's about?
2: If you go to same.org, there is a function, there is a page called You Are Not Alone, and this is specifically for carers who are helping people through suicidal thoughts or attempted suicide, and we've got a whole series of information and and just stories on there that will help carers get through this, because this is what we wanted to point out, that you are not alone with this kind of thing. So, please, if you if you are experiencing that situation and you do have a friend or a family member going through this and you're a carer for them, please check it out. So, at sane.org, you are not
1: alone. Can I just say, too, I mean, hats off for the work you do with SANE as a patient advocate and also to SANE for this website because, I, you know, as I say, I had a look at it. This is easily one of the commonest questions I get as a shrink is, you know, what am I going to do about my friend, relative, the person I love, yeah. this person, you know, whatever, who's um, suicidal. It's incredibly hard and so it's, it's such an important website. Hey, sorry. Uh, yeah. We're rushing through things this morning, Dr. That's Patient. Fine. Great to have you on, though. Thanks, guys. Look you. Take care.
4: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au.
1: I'm Dr. Doolittle, sometimes also known as Steve Ellen. I'm a Professor of Psychiatry at the Peter McCullum Cancer Centre in Melbourne, and right now I'm joined by Dr Michael Mosley. Now, this interview is being pre-recorded, and given things changed so fast, it might be wise to do a little date stamp. Right now, it's Thursday, the 23rd of July at 6pm. I'm pretty sure most of you will know our next guest, but let me give you a little background anyway. Dr Michael Mosley is a science presenter journalist, and executive producer. After training to be a doctor at the Royal Free Hospital in London, he spent 25 years at the BBC, where he made numerous science documentaries. Now freelance, he's the author of several best-selling books, including The Fast Diet, The Eight-Week Blood Sugar Diet, The Clever Guts Diet, The Fast 800, and Fast Asleep. His latest book is COVID-19, What You Need to Know About the Coronavirus and the Race for the Vaccine. He joins me now via Zoom to discuss all things COVID. G'day, Michael. G'day. Hi there. Thanks so much for joining us all the way from London in the UK. Pleasure. Hey, your latest book is called COVID-19, What You Need to Know About the Coronavirus and the Race for the Vaccine. So why don't you start the ball rolling by telling
3: us why you wrote it? Sure. So like uh, most people, I became aware of this um, threat sometime in late January, early February. And uh, I thought, you know, this is really interesting. It could turn out badly, but who knows? I've made quite a few documentaries down the years about the threat of a pandemic So I wasn't totally surprised when it happened. And then it was clearly getting worse and worse. So I was obsessively following all the news, talking to numerous uh, journalists and scientists. And I also got approached by the BBC to make a couple of films for the horizon slot on COVID-19. So I thought I might as well write a book while I'm uh, in lockdown and uh, that's what I started to do. I started to collect lots and lots of information about the virus, about how it worked, what it does to us, how our immune system responds, Um, a bit about the history. Uh, One of the sections in the book is the first 100 days and the opportunities that were missed by numerous governments, and then really looking into the future in terms of the vaccine. So I was particularly following two vaccines. One is the Oxford vaccine. Uh, I studied at Oxford University, so I have a kind of you know emotional link there. Another is one being imp- um, provided by Imperial. And at the moment, it looks like the Oxford vaccine is way out in front. And I'm also pleased to say that pretty well, everything I wrote in the book has turned out to be true. So uh, to that extent, it hasn't aged. Yes. Uh, but I was very much looking at, as, as I said, about. What is it about the coronavirus that makes it such a deadly foe? How does it spread? How does our immune system respond? And why do things go wrong in some people?
1: Oh, so many good things to pick up on there. You know, the first thing though, you know, it's interesting being, you know, someone with a scientific background who's fascinated by health science. I'm in exactly the same position. And I don't know about you, but I often find myself in this sort of weird sort of semi guilty position where on the one hand, I'm just fascinated by this. And I had the same through HIV. I jumped straight into HIV after medical school because of the same fascination. And I feel the same now, yet at the same time, we're going through it ourselves, and at the same time, we're witnessing the tragedy in it. Puts you in a weird
3: emotional space. Do you find that too? Absolutely, because um, some of the time I'm just really scientifically and curiously, if you like, engaged, because this has been one of the most extraordinary scientific endeavours of all time, frankly. Uh, The ability to understand the virus, unravel the virus, uh, really probe what works, what doesn't. And as I said, the, the emergence of the vaccine in such a short period of time, this stuff would normally take, you know, five, six, seven years, sometimes not at all. And yet they've done it in six months. So the scientific... Pale is an amazing one, but at the same time, it is a mind-boggling tragedy, and I think it's still, you know, beginning to unfold. There are parts of the world, Um, Australia, you're having a resurgence. It's very likely there will be second waves in places like the UK and in Europe, um, and in places like South Africa and South America and the States, they still haven't got control of the first wave. So there is a horrible human tragedy unfolding at the same time, plus, you know, the impact on jobs, the disruption to lives. Um, you're probably, and I'm sure, very well aware of the mental health uh, you know, uh, problems associated with COVID-19, the fear, the anxiety, the being cooped up, the uncertainty, the not being able to see your loved ones. So this is something which is playing out in so many dimensions at the same time. And you're right. As a science journalist, I'm this is the most extraordinary story I have ever covered, but at the same time, it's a real horror show.
1: And what is the um, scene like in London? I assume you're in London. I know you're in the UK. Yes. What, is, what is it like in London now? Can you try and paint well, us a if- picture? Where are you up to?
3: It's kind of curious because in many ways it feels like uh, the sort of lull after one storm and before another. The people are out and about. Uh, it's bright and sunny at the moment. Uh, we know that the virus um, seems to be, you know, it goes quiescent uh, when it gets hotter and when it's, um, the ultraviolet kills it. So I think one of the reasons Australia did so well and New Zealand did so well is at least partly when it hit you. It hit you in summertime. I fear that as you go into winter, things will get worse, which could explain why you're having a surge there in Melbourne. And I suspect the same will happen in the UK. It will follow the pattern of other flu viruses, which always get worse in the winter, at least partly because the virus survives for longer, uh, and mainly because we change our behaviour and hang around together. So at the moment, it sort of feels almost a bit normal. I went out for my first meal uh, in a pub with my wife uh, the other day, and I have to say I felt very uncomfortable. There weren't very many of, our, of us, but we were all kind of crammed into one corner. Uh, and the way to no social distancing at all, no masks, you know, breathing all over us, leaning over us, uh, and a few people in the corner coughing. And uh, you know, I don't see myself as high risk, but uh, it was an uncomfortable feeling. I was aware, uh, if you like, uh, of the, the threat of the virus somewhere in the background, even though I intellectually realized that the risks certainly at this point are quite low.
1: Yeah, it's pretty scary. And you've had a very personal experience, which you describe in the book. Your son, Dan, came back from Australia, living in Melbourne, from what I, from what I understood. And uh, when he arrived back in the UK, he turned out to have um, COVID-19.
3: What was that like? Yeah. Yes, no, that was quite strange. He was living with a couple of doctors in Melbourne. He decided to come back. That was on the 21st of March. Uh, He flew back via Thailand. I picked him up at the airport and then the next morning he got a call from one of his um, flatmates who is a doctor and who said, look, I've just been tested positive. I have COVID-19. You probably have it as well. And that evening he came down with a fever, lost his sense of smell and taste. Uh, He displayed all the classic symptoms of COVID-19. Uh, But within a couple of days, we kind of asked him to self-isolate. Within a couple of days, he was um, kind of fine, apart from the sense of smell and taste, which uh, took about three months to recover. And he's still spraying everything with uh, pepper and with chili flakes, because he says he can't really taste anything. (laughs) So uh, that was, was it was a sign, if you like, as well, of the secret power of this virus. It's the ability to infect someone like Dan in Melbourne, Uh, He can travel on a plane, but he has no symptoms at all, and yet he's probably infectious. Uh, And so he travels around the world with the viruses. He arrives back in the UK. He comes and lives with us again. We have not a clue. And then, bang, suddenly he's ill, and he's probably been infectious throughout that period. And as I said, that's kind of the reason this virus has taken off, is the ability to infect people who either haven't got symptoms yet or who may never develop symptoms, but who can easily pass it on to other people. And the fact that we fly all over the place means that the virus can also fly with us and really travel extraordinary distances in such a short period of time. And that's what makes it such an unusual, unique and uh, novel threat.
1: It's a story that really highlights the importance of really treating everyone as if they have the virus, even though, of course, the majority don't. You have to treat them as if they could, hence the importance of distancing, hand-washing, masks and all that sort of stuff. Now, I just want to turn to some of the issues in your book because I've got to say I love the book. I mean, I thought you turned what's essentially a really scary story um situation into a story of of hope and there was a whole lot of background bits that i loved for example you talked about how pandemics pandemics are becoming more frequent can you comment on that why
3: why are they becoming more frequent do you think Sure. I mean, you referred to the emergence of AIDS in the 80s. I was at medical school in the 80s. And uh, first of all, there was this curious thing. Uh, One of my colleagues, in fact, on Horizon made a film called Killer in the Village, which was about the strange outbreak of a disease in New York, which primarily seemed to affect gay men, and no one understood it. And then it turned out to be AIDS. And we've obviously been struggling with that since. And we've also had Ebola, we've had SARS, we've had Moose. It seems to be, at least in part, uh, because um, mankind, humans, are traveling further and further into forests, disrupting ecosystems. We know, for example, that COVID-19 almost certainly emerged in bats living in a cave somewhere in China. They've probably been there for thousands of years with their coronaviruses. And uh, it's when people start to invade their territory, they bite the humans or maybe they bite another animal who infects the humans. We're not entirely sure, but it's that. It's the fact that we're disrupting the natural world. And in the course of doing so, we are unleashing viruses into our environment. And this is obviously a major wake up call because, uh, you know, the scientists who look at this tell me that there are lots more like this one just kind of waiting to emerge, and we better be ready next time. And that, I guess, is the, the scientific story, which is the extraordinary one, is the ability now to do surveillance, to develop vaccines, to develop treatments. And so I think that next time we will be much better prepared. But this has been a very, very nasty wake-up call. So given, you
1: know, the world's full of viruses, they're just everywhere, is there something what's the word i'm after unique about the corona this particular coronavirus that made it that gave it such success
3: i think not unique because we've seen other huge outbreaks um, starting you know within if you like living memory was the 1918 flu pandemic and they've come fairly regularly since so it was not a huge surprise. What makes this one so unusual, as I said earlier, is the fact that uh, you don't have symptoms, or indeed a lot of people don't have symptoms. They're asymptomatic, and yet they can spread it. So for you know 80 85% of people, you're not going to experience anything at all, or you may just experience a mild cough and something like that, and then your body handles it, and you're off. The other thing which is really, really unusual about this virus, but which is good news, is the fact that it does not affect young people people, or barely at all. Um, so previous infections, like the flu, they killed the young and the old. And indeed, the 1918 outbreak, the peak age at which we were most likely to die was to age 28. Hardly anyone over the age of 50 died. It was the young who died. So in many ways, that is even more tragic. So, as I said, the one good bit of news out of this is it primarily affects people over the age of 65 um, who have some form of pre-existing disease. Now, that is very tragic for them and their families, but it does mean uh, the vast majority of the population are safe uh, and are unlikely to come down with anything bad. And we know as well, kids seem to be very poor at spreading it. Lots of really good studies in Australia showing that it's safe to open up schools because kids don't seem to give it to other kids. They don't seem to give it to adults. Uh, I was told by an expert recently there is no recorded case of a child giving it to a teacher. None worldwide. Uh, We have had, you know, three million infections. We have had well over half a million deaths. Uh, but not a single case of that. So that suggests, you know, schools are safe. And that is really good news because um, certainly in the UK, there is a huge struggle to reopen schools and to persuade parents it's safe to go back to schools. And when people ask me, I say, look, there have been three deaths in the UK. You're more likely to get killed by lightning if you're under 20 than by COVID-19. Uh, the risks are very, 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 very small. Uh, and the risks of keeping kids out of school are very big. Um, so, uh, you know, give it some perspective.
4: This is a podcast from triple R an independent media organization in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
1: So just picking up on that point, it's a really interesting point, um, because on the one hand, of course, the governments are very keen to stress the severity and seriousness of this illness, which, of course, at a community, at a societal level, it's dramatic. But at a personal level, it seems to be unfolding that it's probably not as bad as initially thought. You know, for example, the death rate appears to be comfortably below 1%, and uh, whereas initial reports had it as high as 10%. So... You know, it's a fine line that government's are trying to walk. Where would you – I know this is a weird question, but where would you rate COVID in terms of diseases that we currently face? You know, given that, you know, you're talking about some of these risks, how, how do we help people understand where it sits? You know, we want to scare people enough so that they follow social distancing and everything, but, of course, when people get COVID, we don't want them to spend the first three or four days panicking that they're about to, you know, about to have a fatal outcome.
3: Where would you rank COVID? I think Covid is more dangerous than the flu, but only if you're over the age of roughly sixty um, and if you have a pre-existing or if you have a pre-existing condition. So it is much less dangerous than the flu if you are young, particularly if you're a child. So uh, it is obviously hugely disruptive because we need to protect people who are vulnerable. and then there is an unknown which is how many people get it have long-term consequences. So it could be that, you know, if you are 40 or 50, you have type 2 diabetes, you have a bigger gut, you know, you have other pre-existing disease, then the virus could really damage you. You may not die, uh, but you could be living with the consequences for a long time. So we know that the virus can you know, affect the brain, it can affect the kidneys, the lungs, all sorts of organs. So it's a weird one. Um, as I said, for younger people it's not really a threat and that is a challenge because governments obviously want young people uh, not to spread it to old people and they want to cross the curve and things like that but the reality is it's not really a threat uh, and uh, but for people other people you know it is a big threat and um, it's we have a responsibility to protect you know other people, and that's why it's so difficult to kind of grapple with. Because on the one hand, it is very deadly; on the other hand, it is almost completely harmless, <laughs> depending on who you are and what your condition is. And that's also why I write in the book about the importance of losing weight and other ways, like improving your sleep, uh, getting more sleep, can have a fourfold difference um, on whether you're likely to get an infection or not get an infection if you are exposed to the virus. Because we know, in the vast majority of people, it infects uh, the throat. If at all, your body copes with it, gets rid of it, that's it. Story over. You have a mild cough. You never knew you had it. In other people, though, it then spreads into the body. It spreads to the brain. It does long-term damage. So that's what makes this virus very, very difficult to uh, pin down, because you're absolutely right. The mortality rates, uh, the average is about 0.7, but that varies uh, 80 to 100-fold, depending on your age and your metabolic uh, status.
1: You know, I really loved that section in your book where you talked about how to prepare yourself, because, of course, we all know how to um, respond as a society. We know about social distancing, hand washing masks that I've already mentioned. But you had a lovely section in your book about how individuals can prepare themselves and, you know, and the importance of that. Some of them you've just mentioned. So, you know... Can you run through how best we can prepare ourselves, what the key things are? You've already mentioned sleep and the importance of really working on your sleep. And of course, I'm sure like, like in the UK, in Australia, we've got dozens of videos and government sites about tips to improve your sleep. What are the other things you can do to really get yourself um, and your immune system in as good a shape as possible?
3: Sure, weight is a hugely important thing. After age, the major predictor of whether you will get you know, a serious you know, disease and Potentially die is if you're obese. And that is because if you're carrying a lot of fat, particularly around the gut, it's known as visceral fat, it sends out these signals which lead to chronic inflammation. And that in turn messes up your immune system and means that you're more vulnerable to infections. It roughly doubles your chance of ending up in intensive care or dead. Uh, the other thing which people are unaware of, I think, is that if you're obese, that halves the chance that the vaccine will work should, when a vaccine comes along, I'm super confident a vaccine will come along really quite soon. And we know this again from studies of the flu, that people who are vaccinated, uh, if you are obese, then the flu vaccine is half as likely to work uh, than if you are a normal healthy weight. So, I, you know, I bang on about Weight loss quite a lot of the time. Um, I invented something called the five-two diet. In the section of the book, I talk about ways to lose weight and keep it off. So that is hugely important. And then other things, obviously, are to you know try mental, try and deal with stress and um, things like that, which absolutely is your territory. How do you cope uh, with anxiety? Uh, it's not that that is likely to uh, you know alter your uh, response to the virus, but it you know will uh, make your life either easier or more difficult. I think the primary things are uh, lose weight. Um, if you've got a big gut, try and shrink it um, sooner rather than later, uh, and uh, get a decent night's sleep, and do try to exercise. But again, that oh, seems to be important. Uh, that seems to be important for uh, the immune system. And finally, if you could switch. Uh, to a, what I call a Mediterranean-style diet, one which is kind of rich in oily fish and vegetables and legumes, that seems to feed the microbiome, which in turn uh, is very—it uh, has powerful links with your immune system. So there's a lot of evidence that people who uh, move to a healthier diet and cut out the junk food, uh, that means that the immune system is going to be uh, better in a better shape, if you like.
1: It's, it's fantastic advice. <laughs> I must say, I got motivated after reading your book and I'm currently dieting. I also um, turned to vitamin D, interestingly. Now, I'm not normally a massive one for supplements, but, you know, some stuff I read in your book and then I read some other stuff about vitamin D and, you know, do you have thoughts on whether we should be on vitamin D at the moment?
3: I think probably, yes. Um, I was sceptical. I don't believe in uh, supplements at all. But one of the really striking things has been the the fact that people with darker skins tend to get it worse. In the UK, certainly, uh, if you come from an an ethnic group, if Asian or uh, a black uh, ethnic group, um, then your ethnicity, you're likely anywhere between two and four times more likely to get COVID-19, get it badly and to die. So clearly social deprivation plays a significant role in that, but people are now wondering whether vitamin D status does as well. Uh, There was a big study out of Indonesia which found that people with low vitamin D on admission, uh, they were up to four times more likely to end up in intensive care than those who had decent vitamin D levels. Uh, there are big studies going on at the moment, seeing if you supplement, does that make a difference? But um, I think particularly as you're going into winter, it would be a good idea. Um, I recently, I'm actually just making a film at the moment, uh, looking at uh, uh, the sort of nutritional status of people, and uh, we've done a bit of a study. and We found that 80% of the people we looked at actually in the UK, despite the fact that middle of summer uh, that around 80% uh, had either had insufficient or borderline vitamin D levels, which is unbelievably high. Uh, but they were mainly from uh, ethnic backgrounds. So that could um, explain why. But uh, so if you do have a darker skin, then absolutely. If you're going to winter, absolutely. And indeed, um, you know, in the UK, the advice is now pretty well everyone should be taking vitamin D pretty much round uh, the, you know, round the clock. Uh, although the The prime period is really the winter months. Uh, That's when your vitamin D status is lower because obviously you get vitamin D primarily from sunshine, although you also get a bit in uh, oily fish and also milk.
1: Yeah, it was, you know, the thing that convinced me also was with the lockdown, we're getting so little sunlight. We're just not out there much. And so I took another bit of advice from your book because I do a lot of walking, but I tend to do it late in the day. So I've added a half an hour walk in the morning just to really set my circadian rhythms off and get my sleep-wake cycle nice and also um, I've, I put myself on vitamin D just to play it safe. Hey, you also mentioned the vaccine and you wrote about a couple of vaccines in your book, the one from Imperial College and the one from Oxford. And of course, we've just had a whole lot of um, info in the news this week about how the Oxford one's really coming along nicely and appears to be um, creating a great immune response with lots of uh, antibodies, etc., cetera, et cetera. Um, what's, what's the latest over there? Have you heard anything about where it's up to?
3: Absolutely. So I'm kind of keeping in contact with all this stuff. And I actually volunteered myself for the Oxford vaccine, but uh, I'm in the older category. uh, But they've got me on standby. There's actually been, you know, a lot of people have volunteered, which is very altruistic because at this stage, uh, you know, we don't know how well it's going to work. But at the moment, the signs are all really, really good. And uh, the great thing is they're not just planning on producing it in the UK, but planning on producing it worldwide. They've got together with a pharmaceutical company, AstraZeneca, and they are going to produce hundreds of millions of doses in India, in China, in Brazil, and in the States. And indeed, they have three large clinical trials going on in Brazil, the States, and South Africa, because in order to test the vaccine, they're now into sort of final stage testing uh, where you take tens of thousands of people, uh, you give them a vaccine or a placebo, and then you see if the vaccine protects them. But in order to check that it's actually working, you need to vaccinate a population who are at high risk, who have a place where there's a lot of infection around, which is not the UK at the moment. So that's why they're in Brazil and also in the States. And at the moment, absolutely everything is looking great, you have to say. Uh, The side effects appear to be negligible, uh, and it is generating a good immune response, not only from your antibodies, but from these things called your T cells, your killer T cells, which seem to be particularly important when it comes to uh, the coronavirus, to COVID-19. And um, contrary to what people, I've seen some very gloomy reports about the fact that, you know, maybe it won't last. But contrary to that, to be honest, uh, SARS-1, which was, SARS, which was kind of the closest thing we have, uh, the studies I looked at there, people maintained a significant immune response 17 years after uh, being exposed to the virus, which suggests certainly in a related coronavirus, it'd hang around for a long time. So I've seen some very gloomy reports about our ability to deal with the virus long term, but actually everything I hear from the scientists uh, is pretty positive. And uh, they're really seriously talking about being able to roll out the vaccine on a significant roll uh, this year, possibly as early as October and November.
1: That's so positive. It's it's been the best news I've heard in a long time too, and I've really been excited about that this week. Um, and especially on the background, you know, there was some significant oh look a small debate early on about whether the pathway to take was to let the virus go through the community and uh, develop herd immunity, so immunity from people having the virus, but to um, the It would appear that the positivity that we're hearing around the vaccines, you know, 100 in testing, a number like the Oxford vaccine just seem, you know, seeming to offer real hope. It would seem that the approach of, you know, really strong shutdowns, herd immunity, hand washing masks is probably the safe way to go now, given that I think we're all pretty confident that a vaccine will be available, certainly in the next 12 months. Would you agree?
3: Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the idea of herd immunity, let the, you know, the virus do its worst, uh, was a sort of, I'm not sure it was ever really a strategy, but it was something that has happened in Brazil, to a large extent has happened in the States, and we can see, and also to a degree in Sweden. And we can see the implications of that. Uh, The, you know, the the virus is doing its worst, and it's killing an awful lot of people. Because although, you know, 80% of people are not badly affected, that still means... 15% of people are, and that is an awful lot of people. So um, it's the vulnerable people who will almost certainly get vaccinated first. Uh, My major concern at the moment is that the anti-vax movement will be powerful enough uh, that um, a significant uh, number of people will refuse to get vaccinated. Uh, And I do think the vaccines are the greatest invention humans have ever come up with. And, uh, you know, we have lost because we are not used to these things anymore we don't know that polio measles all those things kill on a massive scale and continue to do so in other parts of the world and we are only saved by the fact that we have vaccination and the anti vax movement is extraordinarily dangerous and extraordinarily they, they spread their lies with the, the most amazing effectiveness uh, even quite sane people seem to swallow uh, some of the stuff they say and so that's my major anxiety is that uh, that will Uh, prevent a significant number of people from getting vaccinated, which in turn will mean that it makes it much harder to control the virus. Um, I think uh, uh, this is certainly true in places like the States. I don't know about Australia. I know in Australia you've had quite big outbreaks of things like measles and things like that, thanks to the anti-vax movement. And I can only hope uh, that this is a movement which will kind of die out sooner rather than later.
1: Hopefully that's one of the silver linings of this horrible pandemic that people understand the benefits of these things, because it is scary. On a personal note, how has um, COVID affected you in the shutdown? Has, Has it changed your life significantly?
3: Uh, To some degree, obviously, because uh, I have been uh, at home a lot more uh, with my lovely wife, who's a GP, but also kind of writes. She's been doing quite a lot of um, work online. I I do a lot of work. I write a lot these days. Um, I have had um, I've made a couple of documentaries. I'm making another three part series um, at the moment. Um, So uh, They're coming to me rather than vice versa. So that's quite interesting doing a documentary in lockdown. And I also write a column for a newspaper. So, in many ways, uh, my life hasn't been hugely disrupted. Uh, We've got a couple of our kids living here. For them, it's tougher. Uh, One of my sons who came back from Australia, he's still looking for a job uh, because it's a really rough time to be looking for a job. Uh, And uh, my daughter was supposed to be going to New Zealand for a year. Uh, She's studying law and she got a place at a New Zealand university, so she can't go. Uh, So, but for me and Claire, kind of, you know, life continues. And um, at the moment, we can go down to the seaside, we can swim. I've just come back from a short holiday down in Dorset. So uh, yeah, my life has been all right. But I do feel, you know, I do feel very strongly for people who are old and sheltering, old dude, and uh, for the young who, you know, because this is really, really um, messing with their, uh, you know, what should be a sort of, you know, bright, a happy time of their life. And yet here they are having to shelter. Jobs are not great. And, in, the, in you know, when it comes to kids, a lot of them are having to be at home, which is uh, stressful for them and their parents.
1: Your book is very optimistic. It's ultimately, you know, I, I found myself uh, binge reading it, you know, on account of the fact that it, I felt it quite reassuring, not only because I like, you know, knowledge reassures me, learning the background, learning all the information reassures me, but I also found you had a very optimistic message. You know, do you have a, you know, <laughs> my final question really, do you have a trick to how you maintain your optimism? Because you do come across as, uh, you know, a person who sees the positive. Is it, you know, can we bottle it or is it, is it innate? What's the trick?
3: That's curious because actually I'm quite negative uh, by nature, if you like. And uh, one of the things um, that I did a few years ago, I was making another science program looking at the impact of positivity um, on life expectancy and things like that. And um, at the time, I did a number of tests which showed that I have really quite a gloomy eel approach to life and so uh, I was encouraged at that point to take up mindfulness which is nothing something I'd never practiced before and since then I have done quite a lot of mindfulness uh, and uh, sometimes it's only 10 minutes a day uh, sometimes less than that Uh, but I do find that very useful I have an app and uh, it does sort of It does something at a fairly basic level. And beyond that, I am genuinely optimistic about what I'm seeing emerging from the science, that I can see the gloom, I can see the horror, I can see uh, lives disrupted, but uh, the scientific story has been one of astonishing success. And uh, I cling on to that, if you like.
1: Well... All I can say is thank you, Michael Mosley, Doctor Michael Mosley, for joining us on Radiotherapy on Three R. It's been a pleasure um, reading your book and also talking to you uh, today. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. That was, of
1: course, Dr Michael Mosley talking about um, his book, COVID-19, What You Need to Know About the Coronavirus and the Race for the Vaccine. And whilst uh, that was a pre-record, of course, and whilst that was going on, I looked up at all our local bookstores and it's available. It's $19.99 for the paperback edition. It really was a great read. Now, I'm pretty sure, Panel B, are you still there, man? I certainly am. Who have we got on the blower? We've got the delightful training wheels. Ah, training wheels. Are you there?
5: Good morning. I am. Can you hear me?
1: Yeah, very nicely. Oh, it's great that you joined us. How are you?
5: I'm not bad. How are you, Doolittle?
1: Good. What's uh, give us a little snapshot of the trainer wheels life right now?
5: Uh, My life's not too bad. We're they're sort of trying to fast track us through our last lot of placement so we can graduate on time, um, which you know the timing of which probably couldn't really be worse. Uh, but we're doing our best. It's pretty chaotic in the hospitals at the moment, but um, it's, you know, it's all
1: okay. So when do you graduate, um, by the way? When do you, when's, the, when's the big day?
5: I think it's the end of October.
1: This year or next year?
5: This the, year.
1: So you have to come up with a new name for Triple R um, no, after October, you're no longer training wheels.
5: I knew you were going to say that, and I was thinking, I reckon I'm probably going to feel like I'm still on my training wheels for a while anyway, so I think the name can probably stick a few more years.
1: Yeah, there's no rush. And, and you'll, you'll probably be a consultant, a professor in years to come, and I'll still call you training wheels. That'll be fine. In my most That'll condescending voice. <laughs> Hey, uh, Training Wheels, you were um, having a bit of a read of the uh, newspaper and you were going to talk a little bit about um, how uh, Dan Andrews said people aren't isolating enough at the moment and some of the issues around that. What did you you, um, find?
5: That's right, yeah. So, I mean, I think we can all agree it was a pretty horrendous week for Victoria, you know, relatively speaking, Um, in terms of the numbers of new cases. We had nearly 500 in a single day on, I think it was Wednesday. And I was really struck looking in the news and Dan Andrews's daily press conferences and things. I think it was Thursday he revealed that of the positive cases that we've been seeing, 90% of people haven't been isolating while we're symptomatic before they get tested, which is contrary to all the advice we receive, which is even if you have mild symptoms, you should be isolating and getting tested as soon as possible. And then after people are getting tested and they're waiting for their test results, half of those people aren't isolating either.
1: Mm, yes, it's, it's what, what were the likely reasons, did they say?
5: Yeah, so I was pretty horrified when I first read that, and my first response was, oh my God, how are people being so silly, you know, that's why it's still spreading and da-da-da. But of course, like everything, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And to Dan Andrews's credit, he said, you know, let's not blame these people, let's look at the reasons why this is happening and he mentioned that job insecurity is a huge reason why people aren't able to self-isolate. So people might not have sick leave, people might be casual workers, they might not be eligible for JobKeeper or JobSeeker, and it's just not an option for them to be isolating for a week or so while they wait for their test results, and in the meantime, they're probably spreading it around. And it reminded me of something that the UN Secretary-General said earlier in the week that listeners might have seen as well. He said that this pandemic is revealing fractures in the fragile skeleton of the societies we have built is exposing fallacies and falsehoods everywhere, the lie that free markets can deliver health care for all, the fiction that unpaid care work is not work, the delusion that we live in a post-racist world, the myths that we are all in the same boat. And I think it's something that a lot of people have been reflecting on over the last few weeks is that really a lot of problems we're seeing with the pandemic and how we're trying to cope with it are problems that have always been around. But we've got these fragile systems that, you know, the the pandemic is the straw, it's a pretty big straw that's broken the camel's back, I guess. Um, and it's revealed a lot of those fragilities and problems in society and it's making it harder for us to get the pandemic under control.
1: You know, it's an interesting analogy, the straw that broke the camel's back, because it really is, you know, if you think about, you know, it's this tiny little microscopic thing that, you know, started in one town somewhere that most of us hadn't really heard of before. Mm -hmm. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, lo and behold, it brings the whole of our world to a bit of a halt and exposes all these things. And I guess it exposes a lot about... Our multinational world too and, you know, our trade and, you know, the way we do everything and and it's going to be really, you know, it's sort of edge of your seat stuff as we watch this unfold and figure out what our society is going to look like going forward, isn't it?
5: It sure is, yeah. There could really be an opportunity to change things for the better, but, you know, I'm nervous that that's not what will happen. Um, remains to be seen, I suppose. But, you know, it's really concerning that it seems like job insecurity and, and people that aren't eligible for JobSeeker and JobKeeper, often migrants and low-paid workers and things like that, there, it seems to be those sorts of people who are more vulnerable, and that's what's driving, you know, infections still being quite rampant in Victoria. And at the same time, job being wound back over the next few months, job seekers being reduced. It just seems really illogical to me.
1: Well, it's just so hard to know because, um, unfortunately, there's so much information going around on this pandemic that it's you can't be an expert in everything. You can't be an expert in the economy and an expert in epidemiology and an expert in the infection and human behaviour. It's just so hard. Hey, before I throw to you, though, Panel Beta, for a question, I just want to make one comment that, you know, because I saw all that stuff with Dan Andrews too, and the only thing that I thought that sort of annoyed me a little bit was that we really should be smartening up our test times you know we're currently being told three to five days for when you have a test which really just given that 50 percent of people can't isolate during that time when they could possibly be positive i just don't you know it's one time you know i've been quite i thought they've all done a great job the leaders but that slightly annoyed me you know three to five days isn't good enough you can get that testing you know if you have if you're a staff member at the alfred five hour turnaround time whereas you know my dad um had it on sunday pre he had some surgery on Thursday, had to have it within five days, you know, three days to get results. And that was at a clinic for people with symptoms too. So that was supposed to be a fast turnaround time. And the other thing that annoyed me a little bit was the uh, contact tracers. We keep hearing that they're overwhelmed and they can't do their job as thoroughly as they would like. And of course, a key part of their job is when you're positive, they'll ring you up and they'll talk you through what has to occur. And they just don't have time to do all of that stuff thoroughly at the moment. And so whilst I agree that we need to, you know, uh, reach out to our community, we've also got to get our own house in order and pour as much resources. You know, those resources are tiny in comparison to things like Job Seeker and JobKeeper. So I think it's, it was a little bit of a two-way street. Any thoughts on that?
5: I completely agree. And I think, you know, the, the self-isolating for, you know, an indefinite period of time while you await your test results, really, it's not realistic, even for people without job security. You know, for example, I've I've had, you know, four swabs, I think. Um, and while I'm waiting for my results, my daughter can't go to daycare. Even though she's asymptomatic, I in all likelihood don't have it. But I can't send her to daycare until I know for sure that I don't have it. And for some people, it's not, just not realistic to be waiting around for a week um, for their result to come back so that they can return to normal life. It's it's tough It's tough,
0: mm. I agree. Yeah, fair point. Hey, panel, are you there? Did you have a question? Oh, so many. Um, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> time's kind uh, of short. I don't know where to go with this. Hey, going back to your comments about the um, environment with the precarity, and you are quite right pointing out that um, it's often migrants um, uh, that uh, are most um, dramatically affected. But um, I think what's really interesting is that that's, that's really um, not the case in the sense that we're looking at about 60 to 70% of the Australian workforce in some kind of casualisation or precarity. What's um what from your position as somebody who's coming to the pointy end of their training? What's the health sector looking like from where you're sitting?
5: Uh, I don't know if I should reveal too much on live radio. <laughs> uh, it's very yeah. I don't know. I've only got the experience of my own hospital. I think everyone's really doing their best, but it's tough. I think the aged care sector, in particular, we're seeing is really struggling, and arguably, you know, the privatisation of the aged care sector is in large part responsible for that. I think the public health system overall is doing extremely well, uh, but it's very hard. Uh, just on a sort of on the ground daily kind of um, impression, there is it, it's, it's hard work. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, Units are short-staffed. People are taking time off because they've had exposure, and they have to isolate. People are being reallocated to um, COVID-specific wards, and it's it is it's it's a lot. There's a lot happening.
1: <laughs> is that? I'm uh, oh, sorry. Um, panel and I are in different studios, uh, audience, so we're trying to see through um, glare as to who's got the who's going to have a question. Hey, so what happens to you after October? What is the next step? Like, do you are you applying for jobs now? What's the go?
5: I've applied. I've got my job for next year. Ooh,
1: are um, you allowed to announce um, it, or is it all secret at this stage?
5: No, I can I can announce it. I'll be working at the Austin, which I'm happy about.
1: Oh, that's where um, I did my internship.
5: Uh, yeah, oh, there we go.
1: Look, I'm following in your footsteps, little. Oh, good to hear. Um, I've got a lot of friends yeah. out there. It's a wonderful hospital. You'll love working there.
5: Yeah, I've spent a lot of my time there as a student, and I've had very, very good experiences
1: there. It's a great mix between being a big city university hospital, yet... Um, it has an amazing community around it. So you get a mix of everything and it's got great transplant programs like the liver and a whole lot of amazing units. The best epilepsy service probably in the country. Oh, so that's going to be fantastic. Are you excited about it?
0: I
5: am, yeah. I'm on the liver transplant unit at the moment. It's something that I've, I've spent some time on that unit in the past as well. And something that's really striking is, you know, like you said, it's it's a state service and it's really a very, very impressive group of surgeons, but they're they're so friendly and so kind, a very supportive unit and it's not always the case. So it's a really nice hospital in that respect. It's got it's got the best services in some areas but they're very friendly
4: yeah,
1: supportive environment as well. I love the place. Then that liver transplant, you didn't particularly say hello to the social worker and the psychiatrist, two great mates of mine. Hey, um, so oh, what? And in the last couple of months, what you just have to tick off your final experiences, and then and then you know they give you a brand new stethoscope and you walk into the hospital. Is that what happens?
5: I haven't heard. I I don't know. Do I get some sort of medal or is there like a a, a very formal gowning with a white coat that happens? I don't know. Can you remember
1: how it happened for you? You know, I remember there are a few things, you know, there's a lot of practical stuff. They teach you how to have a prescriber number and a provider number and all this sort of boring business and then you go in there. But the biggest thing I probably noticed was when you're a student, everyone loves you. So when you're a student, you know, everywhere you walk, the doctors are keen to see you because, you know, it means a, a half an hour off their busy schedule to sit down with the students and impart their wisdom and everyone smiles at you and then all of a sudden when you're an intern, everyone's mad at you because you've got a long list of jobs to do and you're never quite up to speed and you always look confused like a, you know, what is it, a deer in the headlight and all of a sudden, you know, where are all these nice doctors who are all so sweet and the nurses were so friendly to me and now everyone just wants me to do something and now everyone's mad at me and I can't sleep because I'm so stressed. No, it's lovely. I'm only kidding.
5: Uh, yeah, well, I've got
1: that to look forward to. Thanks to a little. Zombie. No, you'll love it. Hey, uh, I'm going to do the wind-ups. Thanks, um. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. No, it's great to hear from you again, and good luck with the transition to internship, and I'll be, I'll be looking out for you around the hospitals, and if I see you, I'll make a point of being nice. Um, <laughs> panel Beater, um, thank you this morning too. Sorry that it's been a bit uh, tricky to pass over to you for questions and get eye contact through multiple windows. Um, have you got a good day planned? Uh, yeah yeah I um yeah I'll have a have a lovely Sunday afternoon. Oh beautiful, and uh, me too. I'm heading off to sit in the backyard and I don't know read a book or something. Hey, uh, thank you all for listening. Special thanks to Dr. Michael Mosley um for uh, his interview. Special thanks, of course, to as I said to Panel Beater, to Dr. Patient, and to Trainer Wheels.
0: Hi.